I fell in love with cocktail culture in New York in 2005 when I went to Milk and Honey for the first time. And again, that story in itself was life-changing and to this day gives me chills because I met Sasha Petrosky. Um, I had an amazing, amazing life-changing experience that first night that I went to Milk and Honey. Um, and that helped just dial things in even further for me as far as the attention to detail um, and, the, and the process and, and the hospitality behind it all. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me, whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here, and so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. Hello, friends. Welcome to the latest episode of Decoding Cocktails. I'm excited that you're here. Before we get started today, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by three people. Those people are Janine, Drew, and Leslie. So who are these people? They are three of the patrons supporting what is a new members-only front for Decoding Cocktails. They're helping power things like this podcast. So... Um, what are they getting in addition to amazing shout outs on this show? They're also getting exclusive uh, video content and other things that are kind of behind the paywall. They're getting access to monthly virtual classes that uh, I'm often inviting experts along to teach uh, how to make various things. And something I'm actually really excited about that I'm kicking off this uh, in, in the near future, virtual tours of the liquor store. So as these stores continue to balloon and the proliferation of awesome products, sometimes not so awesome, things are all over the shelf, I love this idea of being able to help people think about how do you tackle a portion of that. So on a monthly basis, we're going to do something like dig into the, the gin section or to the rum section. And hopefully this is the kind of thing that will create um, a more empowered buying experience for people like you. So if you are interested to learn more, uh, be sure to check out uh, patreon.com slash decodingcocktails, or you can find it via my website. My guest today is Ryan Maybe. Uh, Ryan and I, it was a, a fun little, uh, probably roughly 36-hour turnaround or so between when Ryan and I got introduced and actually when we ended up having this conversation. The timing of the introduction uh, led to the fact that we had our conversation while we were at Tales of the Cocktail, which was a lot of fun. So Ryan is the co-founder of Jay Rieger & Co., which is a uh, a growing and incredible presence in the Kansas City whiskey and craft distilling scene. Um, Ryan came to this by, he started in the hospitality industry first at a place called Pierpont's. And it's a lovely place, I believe, inside Kansas City's Union Station that he says he loves until this very day. But while he was working at Pierpont's, uh, he kind of stumbled into the cocktail world. And it really uh, took him by surprise and grabbed his emotions in a, a great way. And so he talks a lot about the first cocktail that really kind of 
uh, awakened him to things. He talks about beginning to go to cities like New York and Chicago that were really beginning to pop off and show things and expanding his mind and palate. But in the meanwhile, Ryan had left Pierpont's and had started a place called J.P. Wine Bar. And while he says that they were uh, doing various cocktails among their coffee service, at some point he was like he had to get out and start a full-on cocktail bar, and that was called Manifesto. And he says that he was so fortunate that from day one, business just popped off. People came in, and he stocked wine because he thought people might want it, and it was just going bad because everybody was coming in ordering cocktails. And so um, Manifesto, unfortunately, is one of these places that did not survive the pandemic. And just before Ryan and I had met uh, at Tales, one of the big um, uh, liquor holding companies, Pernod Ricard, put on a party where they resurrected, uh, if you will, six bars, I believe it is, that went under during the pandemic. And Ryan talked about what an emotional moment it was for a lot of his staff. And I thought that was pretty cool to kind of see that come back. So he had Manifesto. He moved upstairs to take over the rest of the building, uh, what, what he knew of, of as the Rieger Hotel. And so he put in a restaurant there. And I will leave it to Ryan to tell you the story of how the whiskey company came to be. It is um, it is deserving of a movie. So, dear Hollywood, you should probably pay attention. It's uh, it's pretty, pretty remarkable in that regard. The final thing I'll say that I admittedly was not too uh, savvy on is uh, the story of Kansas City whiskey. So before um, Prohibition, one thing that Ryan says his research shows is that somewhere around 15 to 20 percent of the U.S. whiskey stock was bourbon and rye. So what was the other 80 percent? Well, it's likely, he says, that a significant portion of it may have had little bits of Oloroso sherry, a, a sherry that's fortified in it. And through some study, research, and resurrection, they've created Kansas City Whiskey, which is now a formal designation as having a small amount, uh, less than 2.5% or 2% of Oloroso Sherry. Um, Ryan's energy is just magnetic. I think you're going to love it. And uh, so that's enough from me. You can find them online. Uh, Jay Rieger Co. is where you'll find them on all the social channels. Uh, but I'll get out of the way and let Ryan uh, tell the story from here. Enjoy. Ryan, thanks so much to- for taking time to, to talk today. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Cool. Uh, so where I think I want to start and a question I often like asking people is, is there a moment you remember falling in love with or deciding you were going to commit to this industry? Absolutely. Um, probably more than one. Um, but if I, you know, do you want me to tell the story? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it. so there was, there was a real moment where um, my first job in the industry was uh, at a really beautiful high-end steakhouse in Kansas City with this gorgeous back bar, 20 feet tall with a rolling library ladder, very opulent, very high-end. And I got hired there at the age of 21 as an apprentice. And this was back in 1999. You know, it was, it was really before the whole craft cocktail movement gained momentum and became a thing. So, you know, I was slinging chocolate martinis and cosmopolitans and apple teenies 
uh, every night by the by the the dozens or hundreds, and then the it, anything else was like either a scotch on the rocks or a gin tonic. You know what I mean? It was old school stuff. It was really ahead of you know before all this this stuff that we see today. And when we first opened that restaurant, um, we did try to. It was in a beautiful old like train station. We we tried to the the owners tried to revive this like classic cocktail thing, but it was too soon. And it, we also didn't learn as bartenders, we weren't taught the, the proper techniques and methods to make these drinks. And so we had this like long list of cocktails, like old school cocktails that were featured in our happy hour that we were supposed to sell for like five bucks or whatever. And a bunch of them were like totally random, no name stuff, like from way back in the day. And there was this drink on the list uh, that caught my eye called a Sazerac. And I was, I, I looked it up in a book. We had a couple cheap, like Mr. Boston's books, that kind of thing, you know, and I looked up Sazerac and I, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And so my bar manager being, you know, I was 21, didn't really know what I was doing. You know, we were not trained how to make these drinks. I called my bar manager over one day. I was like, what is this one? No one's asked for it yet, but like, what's a Sazerac? And my bar manager didn't know. He had never, he wasn't familiar with it. And he's like, well, let's make one. You know, so we look it up in a book and it probably wasn't a very good book. So he starts walking me through the steps of making a Sazerac. And we didn't have, um, we, we actually did have rye whiskey, which was rare at the time. We had one bottle of Old Overholt. That was it. There was nothing else. So we used Old, old Overholt. But he had me like pour it on the rocks, you know, with like a sugar cube. And uh, we didn't have Peychaud's bitters, and so we, were, we used Angostura bitters, you know. And he had me, like, you know, muddle up the sugar cube and put Ango in there and then fill the, the glass with, like, you know, cheap chipped ice, you know, and then fill it with uh, um, Old Overholt rye. And then, of course, this was in 1999, and so absinthe was still illegal. Uh, there was no absinthe, but we did have uh, a couple knockoffs, um, and so I think we used Grand Absente might have been a, a thing at the time. Mm. And he had me float it on the top, like just pour it over the top of the whiskey. And we both took a drink of this and we're like, oh, God, that's awful. Like, it's so bad. And he's like, yeah, don't recommend that one. I'm like, no, I won't, you know. And so like two years went by and no one had ever asked for a Sazerac after that. I hadn't thought about it since then. All I remember was like, this is the worst drink I've ever tasted in my life. Until one day, about two years later, this guy comes in, and I can still see him to this day. He's wearing kind of like a wide-brimmed fedora hat. He's got a trench coat on. Um, not that old, maybe in his 40s or so. And he's like looking at this gorgeous back bar, and he sees that we have right whiskey, and he sees that we have um, something close enough to absinthe, you know, like Grand Absinthe or whatever at the time. And he looks at me, and he goes, do you know how to make a Sazerac? And this is the first time I've heard that, that word in two years. And I'm like kind of taken aback by it. I'm like, yeah, but you don't want that. And he just kind of laughed. He goes, tell you what, I'm going to walk you through how I want you to make it. And let's do this together. And so, you know, I had, you know, those old bar spoons, you know, that are really cheap with the red knob on the top. But we never used them. You know, we didn't stir cocktails back then. Everything was shaken. Um, and so he actually took the time. This is a guest took the time to walk me through how he wanted his drink made and as clumsy as I might have been at the time um, by that point we did have Peychaud's bitters um, so I'm using Peychaud's bitters uh, we had simple syrup I'm using simple syrup I'm clumsily stirring it and everything he had me pour the the Grand Absente into a glass and just dump it out rinse it you know which I had never seen before never been taught how to do but do that before um, and then strain 
the drink in there. And then he taught me how to, you know, do the, the, the orange twist. Or I'm sorry, the lemon twist over the top. Like the, the lemon oil. And uh, which I had never done that before either. And, you know, I'm doing all these things for the first time. And at, when I was all done with it, he's like, take a drink. And so he let me, like, smell it and take a drink. And it was such a profoundly different different experience. And while it may not have been perfect or the best Sazerac I've ever had, it immediately clicked something in my brain where I'm like, oh, wow. Just these subtle differences in technique and method result in something entirely different from what I did before. The ingredients weren't really that different. It's just I was shown how to do it the right way. And it was a, that was a light bulb moment for me where I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And I started to understand the, the creativity and the precision uh, and attention to detail that went into making drinks. And so I started diving a little bit deeper into it. And that's probably the, the, the one moment that jumps out to me the most uh, when it comes to uh, my you know, falling in love with cocktail culture, bar culture, that kind of thing. Everything about it. Even you know, looking at the hospitality side of that story and the fact that I was you know, not being a... Um, you know, a, a, an arrogant bartender that, you know, like a lot of the guys that were older with me that, you know, that I was working with at the time, they're kind of crusty old bartenders, you know, <laughs> probably wouldn't have taken the time to do that, you know, but like listening to my, my customer, my guest, and like, you know, that interaction, everything about it was just really, uh, really memorable. Yeah, a, a really transporting moment and not the first time I've actually had someone tell me that they can distinctly remember the moment that a guest showed them how to make them a drink. Yeah. Um, that And so this was at Piermonts? Is that Pierponts. the... Uh, Pierponts. It's still around today. It's a wonderful, beautiful, gorgeous, like, timeless restaurant uh, in Kansas City, a steakhouse in uh, the old Union Station building. It's beautiful. Uh, it still holds a very uh, special place in my heart to this day. I worked there for five years, and it was there where I decided that, uh, you know, I was, I was paying my way through college and not really sure what I wanted to do. I was in my early 20s, and that's where I decided, you know what, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I love it. And, uh, you know, it, I quit going to school. I dropped out, and I just said, I'm going to own my own bar. And I just started working towards that. So, so you have this kind of revelatory Sazerac moment. Yeah. And... At that point in time, was it at Pierpont's for a while that you were then kind of slowly digging in, or did your cocktail exploration happen away from or after that job? How did it kind of kickstart for you after that moment then? It it was all very much instantaneous after that moment. Um, This was probably 2002, roughly, and uh, right after that, I was so intrigued, uh, and I wanted to learn more. Um, I went to Barnes & Noble. Um, you know, we, we didn't have Amazon at the time to like order a cocktail book online. Uh, but I went to Barnes and Noble to, to buy some, some better quality books. And I, I saw a craft of the cocktail there on the shelf, you know, with the Dale DeGroff, you know, flaming the orange over the top of the, the Cosmo. And I'm like, well, that looks like a good book, you know, and I had no idea who Dale was at the time. Um, but I bought craft of the cocktail, right? I think when it first came out, it was right around that time. It was like a front facing book at Barnes yeah. and Noble. And so I brought, I bought, uh, uh, Dale DeGroff's Craft of the Cocktail and I, it, what I love about that book is in the very beginning is like he really takes the time to go through the simple basics like the simple like how to cut your garnishes and how to stir and how to you know those simple things that it's easy for us today to take for granted and uh, making just using fresh juice the difference between using fresh juice versus a sour mix which we were using sour mix at the time and I remember taking that book in uh, to work and showing it to my older 
uh, senior bartenders, you know, the guys that I was being mentored by. And um, I was like, this guy says we're doing everything wrong. <laughs> you know? And they all like laugh and they're like, they're like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But it, 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 you know, that was just the next step in that evolution and that progression. Right. And so I started like squeezing fresh juice to order when my customers ordered a, a, a drink that called for it, you know, and started practicing how to stir and all those things. And then after that, um, I started going to New York a lot. And um, I, I fell in love with cocktail culture in New York in 2005 okay. when I went to Milk and Honey for the first time. Mm -hmm. And again, that story in itself was life-changing and to this day gives me chills because I met Sasha Petrosky. Um, I had an amazing, amazing life-changing experience that first night that I went to Milk and Honey. Um, and that helped just dial things in even further for me as far as the attention to detail um, and, the, and the process and, and the hospitality behind it all. And so it, it was a gradual process. But over the, like the five years that I worked uh, at Pierpont's, I you know, went from being an apprentice bartender to being the, the head bartender, uh, creating the cocktail menu. I got my SOM certification at the time, and so I really got into wine. Um, and then it just all just kind of continued to cascade after that. That's... Um you know, it, it, that's fantastic. And yeah, I mean, to hear uh, Milk and Honey was unfortunately before my time. Yeah. But, yeah. but to know that so many bars that we look at, or at least that we experienced early on, had that influence from that, that uh, you know, bold, kind of uh, irreverent in your face, this is how it's going to be feel. Right. Um, yeah, d just very transformative moments. And it is, it is the thing I love with guests, too, is taking them to a drink they think they know. And I mean, you know, the daiquiri is such an easy reference, but it's like, oh, like taking people back to like, oh, drinks that don't suck if you don't do them the wrong way. And, right. and really an opportunity to discover like how beautiful those basics can be right there. Yeah, and it was that night at Milk and Honey where um, I ordered a Sazerac. And it was, I think that was probably the first time that I actually asked for a Sazerac to be served to me at another bar. And that was the best Sazerac I ever had that night. I mean, because, you know, they really got it. They really, mm. you know, they knew, obviously, it's milk and honey. You know, yep. they, they were the pioneers behind what we're doing, what we're all doing today and how we ended up here. So, yeah, it's just a really incredible experience. And it really helped crystallize my vision for my bar at the time because I didn't have my own bar yet. Um, but having, you know, started starting to gain an understanding of, proper technique, proper ingredients, the, the history behind the cocktail, and then seeing it in action at Milk and Honey helped uh, really crystallize what my bar was going to be, and that's how Manifesto came into existence. So to the enterprise that you've launched, was the Rieger the first establishment that you had? No. Oh, so Manifesto preceded it. Yes, but there was another one before that even. Oh. So I opened a wine bar in 2006. Uh, in Kansas City called JP Wine Bar and Coffee House. And uh, like I said, I had my SOM certification, so that one was really wine-focused. But at the same time, I, was, this, I had this cocktail thing in the back of my mind. And so even there, we had a small cocktail menu, but we, we were using all fresh juices. Uh, we were trying to do things the right way. You know, and I, I was still kind of like learning and progressing uh, when, I, when I opened that. But it was during that time, like between 2006 and 2008, 
uh, having JP Wine Bar where the, the cocktail thing really came into focus because I was going to New York like every two, three months, right? Okay. Chicago every every few months and going to like Violet Hour and the drawing room yep. and met Charles Jolie during that time and, you know, starting to see how this was becoming a thing, like kind of the underground mm-hmm. in the industry around the country. And I'm like, I've got to do this in Kansas City. Like, I'm going to be the first. Like, I have to be the first one to do this. <laughs> you know, like people will love it. And sometimes people would scoff at things like that, saying like, well, Kansas City, you can't do this in Kansas City. I'm like, well, why not? Of course I can. People, if it's good yep. and it's exciting, like people are going to gravitate towards it. You know what I mean? And so after two years of the wine bar, I decided what I really wanted was to have that style of cocktail bar. So I sold uh, my share of the wine bar to my partners, got out, and then I went on to pursue Manifesto, which came first. Manifesto was the beginning, and then the Rieger followed that. Got it. Okay. Um, and so if it was first, did you have the whole building or did you just buy the basement initially or, or, or rent out the basement I, first? I just rented the basement um, in the beginning and it was dirt cheap and because it was an old building that was kind of run down um, in a part of town that wasn't yet uh, a buzzing, vibrant, you know, uh, urban experience yet. Um, it was... Uh, like there was a little bit of a destination idea there, but it was very early. And so I rented the basement for next to nothing. I had very little money to actually put into the, the build out of uh, manifesto and, and forming, you know, creating that bar. It was very shoestring. Um, so we started with that and it just blew up. I mean, it took off way bigger than I anticipated. It was almost immediate. And uh, within one year I wanted to, I moved to take over the, the, first floor and then do a full service restaurant above it got it so what i am curious about with that is i know that when our first real cocktail bar in st louis mm-hmm. uh taste by niche originally got it yeah. started when, yeah, ted, yeah. When, when ted got his start and that was really my s- same time yeah. pretty close and that was my transformational moment I, yeah. I visited him when he first arrived in st louis at monarch but i remember going in to taste and just everything was 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 off was different everything was different i was yep. like i was like, I was like what, what the fuck is happening here so but i remember ted saying and hey st louis and kansas city new york and kansas city are not the same place i feel like ted said initially that he really kind of had to, to work to get people more mm-hmm. uh bought into it you found that those drinks were moving right away for you. It was, it was instant. It was immediate. In fact, I hedged my bets a little bit in the very beginning of Manifesto where I had a small, in the very beginning opening, I had a small list of craft beers, uh, maybe say six to eight craft beers. And then I had like three white wines by the glass, three or four red wines by the glass, thinking like, I, you know, I have a hospitality background and everything that we do has to be hospitality first above all else. You know, we can't put our own ego about the product ahead of hospitality. And so if somebody came down to my bar and just wasn't interested in having a weird craft cocktail, they just wanted a glass of Pinot Noir, I was going to give it to them. You know, I wanted them to feel welcome and comfortable more than anything else. But what I found was in the first six months, I was throwing away more wine than I was selling. I'd open a bottle to sell one glass and then it would sit there and it would oxidize and I'd have to throw it out because people weren't ordering it. They wanted the cocktails. They saw it. They smelled it the second they walked in. It was exciting. It was different. It was visually stimulating, 
right? And they wanted that experience. And so within, I, I, I'd say the first four or five months, I just nixed the whole thing. I got rid of all the beers. I needed more cooler space anyway. You know, I got rid of all the wines. Um, and if uh, I'd have like, I'd have my own little personal stash of wine in the back. If somebody really wanted it, I could make them happy. But I didn't have to put it on the menu. Uh, it was full bore cocktails, like 100%. You know, one of the things would be interesting to ask Ted, because I've not asked him this yet, but, you know, because when he originally came on the scene with his, with the taste, it was really kind of designed to be um, the holding space, a dignified holding space for this much nicer restaurant like next door. Room, yeah. And so versus with Manifesto being able to be a little bit more of its own destination, yeah. you know, he's catching a crowd that might not have been ready for it versus your people were seeking you out deliberately for it too. Yeah, we created this, uh, um, and I don't remember the, I remember going to taste pretty early on, but I don't remember the process. I, but we did create a very similar process as Milk and Honey. So we had these very discreet and mysterious business cards where it just said, it had the manifesto logo on one side and on the other side, it was just a phone number, nothing else, no address, no instructions. It was like a phone number and it was like a small, slim little card that I would pass out. And so it created this like intrigue where people were excited, like, Ooh, I'm doing something like mysterious and shady. And the entrance was in a dark alley past, you know, the, the trash dumpsters and there was no sign. And it was really, really, a. a an exciting experience, but I also kind of wanted people to feel like they were doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to create an experience before they ever walked in the door. Yep. You know, like build up this anticipation. And then it was really on us, like once they got in there, to not let them down. Right. You know, make sure that we delivered throughout the whole process. And so I think that probably had a lot to do with that early reception was that level of excitement and intrigue that we created. I mean, people love to be in on a secret and, yeah. uh, and certainly like, like, oh, cause, um, you know, also not maybe probably knowing the St. Louis bar scene enough, uh, when Kevin Brennan o- opened the original, uh, Maryland house where like, you just had like, there was a red door that was unmarked, right? Pulling back that door and people being like, what is happening was one of those moments. It was a, a moment of great joy and, right. and being that manifesto, you know, you kind of, you were you're going into the murky basement, watch your head. Right. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it certainly is. It's a little bit dangerous. Are, you, are yeah. you sure this is the right direction? Kind of. That's, kind that's of exactly. I wanted people's, uh, you know, heart rate to go up a little bit. I yeah. wanted them to feel like they were actually doing something wrong. Yeah. That was part of the, the adventure. So being a, you know, uh, seeming uh, a diehard Kansas City guy, so maybe this could be it. But so with something like Rieger, which if I, from my math, is something like, so it's a brand that was came up in the uh, late 1800s. Yeah. Uh, we need to talk about the mail order catalog piece for sure. But, you know, this is a brand, a name that had been dead for 90-something years. It's 95 years. And then you decided to bring it back. Was it... Hey, why not? Or, or, or what, what led to you? I know the Rieger restaurant came first, but what led you to want to lean on this in the first place? So what happened was um, about a year into Manifesto, I had the opportunity to take over the first floor, uh, you know, above Manifesto and do a restaurant. So I knew I wanted to do that. Uh, so I partnered with a chef. Um, and I didn't, we didn't really have a, a strong concept in the beginning. We didn't have a concept for a restaurant. Like Manifesto was such a bold concept. Like I knew... I could paint a picture of it so clearly. Like I knew exactly what it was supposed to be, how it was supposed to feel, all those things. With the restaurant, I didn't really have that clear picture in mind at first. But what I did have was this really cool old building 
you know, we were in this amazing old building that I knew was built in 1915. Um, it had been pretty much, you know, abandoned for a, uh, a lot of years. But the first floor had this original tile floor on it uh, that was nearly 100 years old, had this R logo. And I knew that when it was first, I did enough research to know that when it was first built in 1915, it was called the Rieger Hotel. It was a hotel back then. And so I told my partner, the chef, like, let's lean into that. Let's call the restaurant the Rieger. And I'm, I feel like this building has a story to tell. I remember clearly saying those words to him. Like, this building has a story to tell. Let's bring back that old identity. Let's call it the Rieger. I'll do some research into the history of it, see what I can find out. And uh, it was one day where I was, uh, I was out in the parking lot. We were under construction uh, for the restaurant. And I was out in the parking lot looking at the south side of the building on the, this brick wall, this three-story tall brick wall, um, thinking about signage. Like, okay, how are we, where are we going to put the sign? What's the sign going to look like? And I noticed this faded image, like really badly faded image, what appeared to be a painted mural from decades ago that was faded beyond recognition, but the sun was hitting it just right. And it looked like I could make out the outline of a bottle, what looked like a bottle. And then I could almost, I'm like staring at this blank wall, looking like an idiot, you know, standing on the street. And I could swear I could make out the, the letters K... E-Y. And I'm like, I think there was an old whiskey advertisement here. And so I was really intrigued to like find an old image of whatever that whiskey ad would have been. And honestly, I'm thinking probably something like Seagram's, Old Crow, something along those lines, like a big brand from back in the 50s or 60s, maybe. You know, and so I start looking online um, for old images, and I managed to come across an old image from 1916. Um, showing that direction uh, down Main Street, looking north up Main Street. And the image was, uh, it was sure enough a whiskey ad, but it was none of those brands that I thought. It was Jay Rieger and Company Whiskey. Hmm. And that moment just sent a chill down my spine. Like That was the moment that I realized there was a whiskey brand in Kansas City prior to Prohibition, and the same family that had that whiskey also built this hotel and I'm like holy shit what did I just stumble onto you know and so it's a long way of answering your question but the answer is I never thought this is a good idea I never thought well what if we do this it was an instant feeling of obligation I'm like I have to bring this back like this is the writing is quite literally on the wall (laughs) I mean (laughs) as crazy as that sounds um, and believe me, it did sound crazy. My investors were not happy. You know, by that point, you know, Manifesto was like crushing it. And I uh, was able to attract some investors to help us, you know, put money into building this restaurant. And all of a sudden, I'm coming back with this crazy idea about uh, creating whis- a whiskey brand. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and so it didn't happen immediately. But I, I became so obsessed with learning about the history of Jay Rieger and company that I found all this old information, all the, on, all the, the catalogs and the mail order stuff. And I found old bottles at thrift stores and suddenly it was everywhere this is a brand that had been dead in kansas city for 90 90 plus years and yet all of a sudden i saw it everywhere i went Mm -hmm. you know what i mean signs of it were everywhere and so i built that into the concept of the rieger and when we opened the rieger i had a lot of those old images and advertisements on the wall and i had old bottles old rieger bottles that were 100 plus years old behind the bar to be a part of the identity of the restaurant Mm -hmm. We were not at the point yet where we could like resurrect the brand, but it was absolutely a part of the identity of the restaurant at that point. And it was on that opening night that Andy Rieger walked in the door, 
who is the great, great, great grandson of Jacob Rieger, who started J. Rieger and Company back in 1887. And he introduced himself to me. And that was, I mean, well, now the rest is history. <laughs> you know, I mean, so that's kind of how that, that whole inspiration happened. God, so, so really at the end of the day, I mean, so you get caught up in cocktails through a random Sazerac you make for a guest. You know, you start falling into the cocktail sphere through milk and honey, the New York mm-hmm. scene, et cetera. You decide you're going to open a bar, but the serendipity of where, and obviously the propulsion of cocktails of the moment, not only, it, it's like, yeah, like it feels like, I mean, honestly, it feels like your story is being like propelled forward by momentum and serendipity yeah, and all I mean, every, every, there's so many, uh, you know, uh, serendipitous moments and things that happened that were, you know, clearly advantageous, you know, and, and happened just at the right time in order to make this happen, like right at the early side of the cocktail renaissance that we all see now, all that stuff, it all kind of, you know, fell into place. Um, but I'm also, I'm the type of person, and, and this is where Andy and I are like, like total opposites, which is great, by the way, is that he's like this very practical thinking, very well planned, like got, you know, he's organized in in his thoughts and everything. And I'm like, I'm the kind of person that like gets excited and emotional about inspiration and creativity. And I'm like, I'm just diving in headfirst without even looking down. I mean, I'm, I'm taking that jump, you know, and I, cause I feel it in my gut, like that's the right thing to do. I know it. I don't know why I know it, but I know it, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's where he and I are like the yin, yin and yang, you know what I mean? Which is a great, a great partnership in that, in that re- regard. Cause it took me like two years to convince him to be a part of it. You know, I was a hundred percent, you know, convinced this was the right thing to do. And I'm like, I'm going to do it one way or another, but you are the Rieger family. Like you need to be a part of this, you know, but it, yeah, the, the serendipity is it's, it's a little ridiculous. I mean, it sounds made up, you know? Yeah. But, but I mean, but it's the kind of thing you, that happens in a movie, and so why can't it happen in real life, right? right? So, um, so another thing I was thinking about, so you, 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 you fall into the production of spirits, and we can kind of get into them a little bit. But so I feel like, um, you know, we certainly obviously all know terms like bourbon and rye, but you also have a designation mm-hmm. like Tennessee whiskey, Right. But uh, so tell tell the folks listening a little bit about what uh, what so-called Kansas City whiskey might be. Um, so Kansas City whiskey, you know, when we're we're talking about resurrecting a brand that's been dead for 95 years, um, there's no like actual um, liquid out there. We can't taste it. We don't know what it tastes like. We don't know. Uh, we actually don't really know what was being made back then because prior to prohibition. Uh, there really weren't any rules or laws or regulations like we have today. Today, the, the liquor industry in the, in the United States is heavily regulated. Um, uh, really, there's a ton of um, bureaucratic red tape that you have to go through, which back then, it was literally and figuratively the Wild West. You could do whatever you wanted. Um, you, could and send, so you could send it in the mail. We could ship it in the mail directly to your front door around, all around the country for cash, you know, <laughs> you know and no questions asked. Um, it's not like that today, but you know, when we're resurrecting this old brand, uh, we really wanted to know, I I really wanted to know, like, what were we making back then? What was Rieger's whiskey? What was Rieger's monogram whiskey? And that was the label that was the most prominent. What was Rieger's monogram whiskey back then? You know, Andy didn't have a, a, a recipe handed down to him, you know, from through six generations. Um, so we kind of had to figure it out and we could have just done in the beginning like what a lot of brands have done, 
we could have just sourced bourbon and put it in a bottle with our label on it and called it a day and started the brand that way. We could have done that, and that would have been an easier path. But we, uh, we tend to take a little bit of a, a more you know, challenging and complicated uh, approach because we wanted to do something special and proprietary. And so through a lot of research and, and, and digging into trying to find our old recipe, what I discovered uh, was that the majority of American whiskey produced during that time period when we were thriving in the 1890s, early 1900s, was not bourbon or rye. That represented a pretty small percentage of overall American whiskey production, maybe 15 to 20 percent. Mm. So you had like 80 percent of the rest of American whiskey production was something else. And it was that something else that I wanted to know about. Um, what I discovered through the help of Dave Pickerel, Dave was one of our early uh, partners that we brought on in order to, to make this thing legit. Um, he and I was actually happened here in New Orleans. Uh, that's why New Orleans has kind of a special place in my heart. Um, we were already uh, talking to MGPI and sourcing some whiskeys from them. We were sourcing some, MG, uh, some light corn whiskey from them. And then we were sourcing from straight, some straight rye from Alberta um, up in Canada, the same place that Whistlepig uh, sourced their rye from. So it was the same juice. And we were kind of tinkering with mixing it together, doing a blend. And uh, I brought uh, a sample of it down here in New Orleans. I was sitting at the Carousel Bar at the Hotel Monteleone in July of 2013. Uh, during Tales of the Cocktail, and I uh, poured a sample of it for Dave, and I'm like, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, it's really good. I'm like, it is good. Um, but, you know, it's good, but it, I just didn't feel like it was ready. And so Dave and I started uh, looking into older methods of rectification, um, both through the TTB and historically. Um, and what we discovered um, was that it was really common back in that time period to add sherry to American whiskey, which was an amazing, once again, light bulb moment. Um, I was already really into sherry, having been a sommelier, um, being into cocktails. You know, at that point, sherry was already kind of a, a darling ingredient for craft cocktails and that, that sort of thing, knowing about the history of the sherry cobbler and, and all that. But it was then that I learned that sherry was an, uh, a common additive to American whiskey back then. And so that was just like, oh, that's what we're doing. That's 100% what we're doing. We're, we're going to blend sherry into our whiskey. And no, one, no one's doing it. You know, no one's doing it today. No one was doing it then in 2014 when we uh, were about to launch. And so um, I went to Jerez de la Frontera uh, with Steve Olson, who was uh, one of the most, you know, uh, uh, one of the biggest sherry experts in the world and also a, a dear friend and mentor of mine. And uh, we spent a week there, you know, going to all the different bodegas and bringing back a number of samples and talking about rectifying our whiskey with uh with sherry and what we ended up landing on uh was a really beautiful 15 year old oloroso sherry from williams and humbert uh and just two percent and this is written in ttb law from back then that you can add up to two and a half percent sherry and it still be called american whiskey that law was written in roughly 1934 um, right on the heels of prohibition being repealed and uh so that's what we did so we, we dialed in our recipe. We got it where we wanted it. It was amazing. And then we sent it off to the TTB, and they rejected it. They kicked it back, and they said, you can't do this. And we're like, what do you mean we can't do We can't do what? They're like, you can't add sherry to it and still call it whiskey. You can't have whiskey on the label. Like, that's not true at all. And, you know, Dave had relationships with them because he had been down that road many times, you know, worked with them. And so we actually had to show them in their own law, their own historic law, where it specifically states that due to established trade practice, you are allowed to add up to 2.5% sherry to American whiskey. And it was just, it's a practice that hadn't been done 
since then. Right. You know, 14 years of prohibition killed so many of these old techniques and methods. So that today, the only thing that we're, we really know of when we think about American whiskey is bourbon, right? And even rye within the last 20 years was, you know, on life support. The, the category of rye almost died. Today, it's now back. But um, there are all these other, like, these methods and, and recipes of American whiskey that we're just not familiar with. And so uh, we had to point out to them that this was uh, legal. And they allowed it. And I like, oh, didn't know about that. So they're like, yeah, you can, but we don't have a category. It didn't fit. The recipe that we were using, the way that we were blending straight whiskeys, light corn whiskey with sherry, and not using any neutral or uh, grain alcohol, like a, like a blended whiskey, um, we didn't fit into any category uh, that they had on the books. And so that presented a, another problem. And it was at that point that I suggested, I was like, well, if you're saying that nobody is doing this today, um, it has historic precedence. I believe that our company, Jay Rieger and Company, was doing this back then. I have uh, lots of indications that, that suggest that we were. Would it be okay if we called it Kansas City Whiskey as a style? And it was at that point that the TTB, kind of much to our surprise, said, yeah, that's, that's fine. You know, and they said, we'll let you do that. And so they granted us permission to classify it as Kansas City whiskey as a a style. So once again, this opportunity, you know, kind of fell into our lap, which we weren't weren't setting out to create a new category of American whiskey. But, you know, um, we kind of accidentally did. Wild. Uh, You know... Since this isn't a 19-hour podcast, we can't break down Sherry as a whole. <laughs> oh, you go on about that, yeah. Yeah, but so, you know, because I find, because to the, to the lay person out there still listening, Sherry is this thing of like, oh, like, what, what, what? so it's a, it's a Spanish fortified wine, mm-hmm. but do you mind for us, Ryan, like, when we're talking about Oloroso, what, what, what might somebody expect from an Oloroso Sherry? if they were going to taste it on its own, just understand what it might be contributing to the whiskey. Yeah, it actually contributes quite a bit. You know, we only have 2% uh, in the blend, but I actually do a seminar uh, where I break down the components of our Kansas City whiskey. I extrapolate each of the whiskeys out and the sherry, and we taste everything individually. And then we taste all the whiskeys blended together prior to the addition of sherry and then after. And mm-hmm. you would think, oh, it's 2% doesn't matter, right? Wrong. It makes a huge difference. And what it has is Oloroso Sherry. The word Oloroso in Spanish means scented. Um, it's very aromatic, right? And it's got these like wonderful, exotic, um, uh, sweet notes of like um, toasted almond and candied fruit, dried fruit, like raisin, prune, uh, things like that. I always get like butterscotch and maple. I get like a maple syrup kind of thing on the nose. But then when you drink it, it does not taste the same way that it smells. It's got this like richness and sweetness up front, but then it finishes like savory. It's dry. It's got salt and brine, and um, it's just so diverse and so uh, dynamic and with layers of cascading flavor. Um, and all of that, even in just 2%, contributes so much to the whiskey and makes it so special. Um, more on the nose than anything else is where I, I get it. I mean, if, if you were to put a lineup of a dozen whiskeys in front of me right now, and KC Whiskey was one of them. You know, in a blind tasting, I could point it out in a second without even tasting it, just by smelling it. Um, because it, it really is distinctive, and that sherry uh, is what does that. Yeah, it can be amazing how even like a dash of sherry in something can just add so much aromatic, you know, uh, seasoning immediately yeah. to the drink right there. So when I think about the the energy I can feel coming across the table as you talk about this stuff, it's it's 
very infectious, but so, like, I mean, having done my homework, so, you know, I mean, Dave Pickroll mm. certainly was no small name mm-hmm. in the industry. You know, Steve Olson, did I say, did I say uh, sorry, uh, Dave Pickroll and then Steve Olson are right. both big names. So, you know, this is a crowded, loud market we're in. You know, it seems like you've been able to build an incredible team around you. Like, I mean, is it just just infection just infecting people with like that that uh, passion you have or like because anyways it's very admirable it's very admirable um i like to think so i mean some of it is timing and luck you know not gonna lie like uh like i said before with opening manifesto in 2009 and um you know getting an opportunity to, to experience milk and honey at in 2005 and i also entered some bartending competitions back then and you know made some some waves that way and that's how i met steve olson and so you know, meeting these, meeting these luminaries in our industry, even if I didn't realize at the time that they were luminaries, having the, um, hopefully having the foresight or at least the, the courage to speak to them and say, Hey, I want to learn more, you know? And that's kind of what it goes back to. Like when I'm, when I'm going up to someone like Steve Olson and I'm 26 years old and be like, Hey, I want to learn from you or, you know, introducing myself to Sasha Petrosky and being like, this is amazing what you're doing. Um, teach me how to do it. You know what I mean? Having that courage to learn from others and being excited about where things are going, I think has, has probably, um, has probably been a really beneficial thing, um, earlier in my career to kind of put me in this, in the, in this position, um, and meeting people like Dave Pickerel and, and, and Steve, um, you never know. I, I, I tell people all the time, like bartenders that, you know, I now judge competitions and, you know, give, seminars and I'm, I'm on panels. I'm like, I tell people all the time, like entering these competitions and getting ingrained in our community is not about winning. It's not about being the best. It's about putting yourself in a position to learn and grow, you know, and those opportunities are around you every single day. Yep. I mean, think about where we are right now. We're in New Orleans. It tells the cocktail and there are people from around the world that are here right now that share your same passion for cocktails and this industry and they have dreams and goals and things too and there's opportunity everywhere like don't take those things for granted you know because sometimes it's right in front of you cool what is uh so i mean again we're in the middle of a crowded landscape you guys have some awesome products but when you think about carving out your (laughs) niche continuing to grow your brand how are you thinking about that these days and what are you what are you excited about right now well, it is tough. I mean, it's, it's a crowded industry. It's a cutthroat industry. It's an industry that really thrives on um, marketing dollars and investment. And we're still a small company and we're still a small brand. Um, so we got to be loud, you know, and we have to tell our story over and over. Um, and we have to deliver it, you know, in a way that gets people excited. Um, you know, we're, we're now, we're in sales, right? At this point, we're, we're a brand. And I want people drinking our whiskey and our gin um, and our vodka and our Cafe Amaro, and I want them using it in cocktails, right? But, but sales is not about just saying, drink it, use it, we're cool. It's about inspiring others, right? That's really at the heart of it, is inspiring others to share that same passion that you have. And so it's not going to work for everybody. Not everyone's going to care. You know, people are motivated by different factors. But the story that we have and the authenticity, authenticity that we have and... You know, it starts with us, it starts with me and Andy, and it starts with Nathan Perry, our head distiller, and the core group that have 
that's been a part of this since the very beginning. But now we have a company of 120 people. And so our job, my job, first and foremost, is to inspire my employees and build a team that believes in this as much as I do so that they can go out and inspire their friends and others in the industry and our guests and our customers and other bartenders. And education and inspiring and telling the story about who we are and, and what we do, that's never going to stop. You know, there is no end goal there. There's no end game. It doesn't end. It'll, it'll keep going. And hopefully someday someone else will, you know, continue it on when I can't do it anymore. Great, it's a great freaking answer. Um, I saw that one of your uh, favorite uh, pastimes is uh, uh, collecting uh, mm-hmm. bar menus from places that you've uh, mm-hmm. you've visited or whatnot. Yeah. You know, milk and honey is clearly you know an easy answer based on. You know, so what I'm curious about is you know with all those menus in tow, yeah. you know, a couple of you know great bars or memories you have from places you've visited. So, so is there one or two that stand out of of, of places or moments you you really recall amongst the backdrop of all of them? Um, yeah, you know, I think it, the menu thing is really fascinating to me because it, it, it's also a creative outlet, right? It's not just a means of conveying your product to your guests, but it's a creative outlet. It's a way of con- conveying your personality. Um, and so I always had a lot of fun uh, writing menus, fun with cocktail. My, maybe my favorite part of creating a cocktail is naming it. Um, it's just fun. Yeah, you know, you should have a little bit of fun with it and be playful with it. Um, and, I, and my favorite menus are the ones that uh, are serious about what they do, but maybe they don't take themselves too seriously. And so they kind of have a, a fun and lighthearted uh, approach to, to their menus. Um, you know, the earlier ones, um, you know, Milk and Honey didn't even have a menu, mm-hmm. you know, and that was part of their identity was like, oh, there is no menu. Just tell us what you like and we'll recommend something. You know, and I, that was the first time I had ever heard that before. Um, but some of the earlier ones around that same time period, I, I remember the Violet Hour menu um, in the early days being very influential, uh, just in the way they separated out the spirits. So it was divided up by, by spirit category, you know, and then having uh, uh, the icons on there, like telling you how the drink was made, whether it's shaken or stirred, um, that type of thing. Uh, really influenced the, my early manifesto menus. And then today, I mean, now menus have jumped the shark to where they are just so extravagant and uh, wildly creative. And sometimes it goes too far to where, you know, it's so, it's so out there that you really can't even, it's hard to figure out like what, what to order. Like, okay, what am I actually looking at here? You know? Uh, so you can go a little too far with the concept, but I, I think it should be fun um, and yeah, I'm trying to think of like some other ones. Um, I remember really loving the, the pouring ribbons menu, um, when they first came out, uh, that was a very cool bar that, that made a great first impression. Um, uh, some other ones that, that jumped out of me. Um, I thought aviary's menu was really interesting in the fact that it was so minimal, didn't really give you much information. Um, but it, it also represented the, the experience in a very concise way, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. I love menus. I, I, I think it's really, really fascinating. We have, now we have, uh, uh, at the distillery, we have the Hey Hey Club, uh, which is our high-end craft cocktail bar in the basement of uh, Jay Rieger and Company. And I'm so proud of the menu uh, that we have down there. It's so beautiful. It's in book form. Um, it tells a story. It weaves a narrative that has a common thread throughout um, that kind of ties together history and music and culture 
you know, with the drinks. Um, it's beautiful. Um, and that all the credit on that goes to our, our bar team down there. Um, but yeah, I think menus are, are really special. We're kind of getting away from it now too. Like you think about, you know, after a couple of years of COVID, uh, now a lot of menus are just digital. You know, you don't have that printed hard copy anymore. You know, you've got a QR code that leads you to a, a digital representation of the menu. So I think that could be both a good thing and a bad thing. You know, it could be a little less personal, a little less rich. Um, but it could also open up opportunities for uh, a different level of creativity. Yeah, it's, it's interesting where I think there is that that opportunity to perhaps take people deeper, um, seeing kind of like, you know, as often as costs change or, you know, if, if menus aren't laminated, how often you're reprinting things. But, yeah, yeah, like there is something nice still about having that that tactile item in your in your hands. But, of course, the digital piece can take you in other directions, too, as an opportunity. Yeah, it's kind of unlimited in its, in its possibilities. It So, obviously, it feels like... Um, you know, integrity of product and of the brand, you know, is, you know, and you've obviously been, you know, a fan now for a while. Are there any, you know, for the, the consumer out there, are there any cautionary mm-hmm. tales or generally watch? It's like, there's so many products out there right now. Um, and I'm just curious, like when someone is thinking about a whiskey or a gin to pick up, when someone's reading a menu, are there any general I don't know, watch outs or rules you'd have for people in terms of how to make a decision when they're in one of these warehouses that is now we call a liquor store? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, there's a lot of noise. Um, and it's becoming, it seems like it's becoming harder to tell, um, you know, what's actually in the bottle. And that goes for multiple categories. I think American whiskey, uh, in a lot of ways, it's there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, you know, with a lot of the, the brands out there. It's hard to tell age it's hard to tell where stuff comes from uh who's actually making it i i believe in full transparency i mean we launched our company uh we launched our kansas city whiskey using sourced whiskeys and we were never shy about it there's nothing wrong with that um so being upfront, being uh, honest and, and transparent i think is really important and it's hard to tell sometimes like where everything is coming from uh same thing with vodka obviously i mean very few, uh, even craft distilleries, are actually distilling their own vodka. They're buying bulk, and, and you know, so that's tough to tell. The, the gin category has gone absolutely crazy. Um, I literally just, you know, being here at Tales of the Cocktail, you, you always see things, new things for the first time that you haven't seen before. I saw coconut gin earlier today <laughs> that, uh, you know, I it did not sound intriguing to me at all. Um, because, well, you know, I'm a little bit of a purist when it comes to, to gin, but there's so much noise, right? There's all these new flavors and experiences and, and things that dilute the category. They prov- I think people want, you know, options. They want to have uh, the ability to choose, and that's good, but there's a lot of dilution happening in the, uh, amongst these categories, and it's sometimes really hard to tell exactly what you're getting. Got it. Well, Ryan, uh one, thank you for taking some time today. Uh, for people who want to know more about uh, Rieger & Co., uh, where, where do they find you guys online? Um, online, we're at jriegerco.com. Um, we're also pretty active on social media. We've got uh, uh, the, the social media handles are all the same, jriegerco, um, both Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, the Hey Hey Club uh, it also has its own uh, brand identity as a, uh, its own bar, even though it's in the basement of our, of our distillery. Um, but yeah, we're, I mean, we, 
I think we're out there. I mean, we try to get out there a lot, you know. Uh, it's tough to, to break through and make, make noise in the industry with so much, you know, so much competition. But uh, I think we're doing a, a pretty good job. Nice work, and uh, thanks for taking some time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktail. Mm-hmm.